Hey there, I am so excited to tell you that the Mental Health Sunday Resource Pack is ready to download. It includes everything your church would need to host an invitational Sunday experience on mental health and faith. Hope Made Strong, along with mission-minded partners, have created digital resources that include research notes, sermon ideas, video, social, and marketing assets, and a seven-day devotional. Plus, there are community invitations, congregate giveaways, and editable digital files. This free resource can be downloaded at mentalhealthsunday.com. I think most of us came from shame-based families. I think we live in a shame-based world, shame-based societies. One thing that I've learned is that people can think whatever they want about me. They can think whatever they want about my story. But I just know this, that shame would have kept me from ever telling it if it hadn't been public. But because it's been public, I have nothing more to lose. Uh, and and so if I can, the, and suddenly the the most painful thing in my life that I would have never ever wanted to tell when I tell it, it helps other people. <laughs> and to me, that is how God redeems us. It's part of His ongoing redemption. I mean, yes, He saved me. I'm going to heaven, but this living out my life on this side of heaven. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura Howe, and welcome to the Care Ministry Podcast. The show today is the first of a series honoring Mental Health Awareness Month. The goal this month is to build awareness of different mental illnesses, and we're going to be doing some myth-busting and highlight some incredible people who have lived experience, but have taken what was some of the hardest and darkest moments of their life and are now using them to equip and strengthen others. Starting off this month, we are talking about bipolar and featuring Pastor Brad Haves. Bipolar is a mental health disorder in the category of mood disorders that goes along with depression and dysthymia, which is similar to depression, but is milder and longer lasting episodes. Bipolar is known for its features of having distinct manic or high moods and depression, low moods. But also people can experience long periods, like up to years of normal moods without any symptoms at all. Each person is unique in the severity of their highs and lows, how long they last, and the length of normal moods between episodes. Scientists have yet to discover this a single cause of, for bipolar, uh, but currently they believe that several factors may contribute, including genetics, stress, brain structure, and function. Those who have a diagnosis of bipolar use similar treatments than other disorders require and have outcomes. While they are positive for most people, they do vary from person to person. The most common forms of treatment are medication and counseling. And there are three myths that are common that I would like to dispel. The first is that bipolar is rare, but in fact, it is more common than you think. 2.8% of adults experience bipolar disorder. That means 
if there are a hundred people that live on your neighborhood block, two or three of them would have a diagnosis of bipolar. And if you have a church of 400 people in your congregation, then 11 of those people would have a diagnosis of bipolar. The second myth is that those with bipolar are just moody. And people often use the name or the term bipolar to describe people or situations in a condescending or derogatory way. And while people with bipolar disorder do experience extreme highs and lows, these are very different from the mood fluctuations that we all experience. If you're waking up happy, getting exhausted and irritable midday, and having a good evening that leaves you feeling happy again, that doesn't mean you have bipolar disorder. It doesn't matter how often that happens to you. Even a diagnosis of rapid cycling bipolar disorder requires several days in a row of manic symptoms, not just several hours. For a diagnosis, clinicians look for groups of symptoms, not just emotions. The highs and lows of bipolar disorder are extreme and often occur out of context and last for extended periods of time. This isn't something that should be taken lightly or said flippantly. This experience for people can be debilitating and often requires hospitalization. The third and final myth is that people can stop taking their medication once their bipolar is under control. First of all, I don't understand the angst against medications and why people think that what stabilizes a bodily dysfunction is bad. If my blood pressure is not operating as it should and a medication rectifies this issue, I most certainly would not be looking for every opportunity to come off of it. Now, I am not dismissing the genuine negative side effects that medications can have. They absolutely can be awful. I just don't understand the challenge of using medication to treat an illness that can have devastating impacts. Taking medication for bipolar disorder acts preventatively to help people avoid future manic or depressive episodes. If you are struggling with side effects of any medication, always consult with your doctor before starting or stopping any new medications. Brad Hoves was a pastor for seven years before receiving a diagnosis of bipolar, and having grown up on a farm in Nebraska in the 70s, mental health wasn't commonly discussed, and while his father struggled with mental health, which required medication, he and he saw him fluctuate in his mood, Brad carried on with life just like any other teenager. The strong genetic component of mental health was either unknown or really not even considered. Brad describes his younger self as being upbeat, fun-loving, never having a depressed day in his life. However, as a young adult, he required medication for a physical issue, and that was the beginning of his own mental health journey. When I was, when I was in my um, very early 20s, a doctor prescribed a huge round of steroids for me to take, and um, that loosened my mood. And now then I started having issues. And, you know, but it wasn't terrible. But it, you know, I was always just doing everything and going everywhere and doing everything and uh, at the seminary. And, and um, but I would have moody days, I would have, you know, where I was going to quit, just run away, not do any of it. And that's fairly normal when, as a young adult, you know, venturing into a new career. So you probably didn't think anything of it. 
No. Yeah, no. Um, and when I got out of the seminary, I graduated and I got put into a very nice church that was um, very vibrant and going. And um, within about, I think it was about two, two, three years after graduating from the seminary, I became the senior pastor. And so I was 30 years old. Oh, I know I was 30 years old. And I thought that was quite old enough, you know. And uh, so I, I ended up being the senior pastor for seven years uh, prior to the, everything happening. But during those seven years, we went from about 800 in worship to over 3,000 in worship. And uh, so little did I know that my disease was getting worse. And um, I knew I was struggling with something. I thought I had a monster inside of me. I really felt like it. And I was afraid if I told too much that people would think I was the monster. So um, it just uh, was very difficult. Can you describe that monster for us? What do you mean by monster? Was it something that was compelling you or something that was trying to overtake you? Can you describe that a bit? At times, it felt like there was... Um, just this buildup of energy inside of me that had to be, it was pushing out, it had to be done. And um, that, that meant I required very little sleep, just lots of energy, lots of creativity, lots of, and I lived that way for the most part. But then I would have days where um, I'm going to quit, or I've got to sleep, I'm too tired. Um, and depressive now I look back on them and they they were just uh it was my mood fluctuating but for the most part um I just felt like just constantly pressured from the inside I would talk fast I would have to go drive on roads I I drove on country roads late at night that were gravel and very hilly and I would turn out my car lights and I would open the car door, stick my foot out, um, going 70 miles an hour. I, I mean, and I could do those things and it was like the monster would back off then. And sometimes I would feel shame about it and guilt and that would bring the mood down. I would be calm enough that I could sleep. And then sometimes it was, I thought I was probably just catching up on all the sleep I was missing, but I could lock myself in a hotel room and do three to four times the work that uh, three or four staff members would get done in six months I could do in three days, you know. Right, and you was that celebrated? Yes absolutely celebrate it. I was, the church was growing, it was going. And even though I could be difficult to work with, people just thought he's just, you know, creative. He's just very much, you know, a leader and uh, he, he gets frustrated easily with all of us and that. And behind the scenes, it was getting worse at home. I was getting more and more agitated and irritable and moody and, when I was fun with the kids, I was a lot of fun. And then when I was upset, which could I could turn on a dime, and um, then it would was bad, you know. So my wife knew something was wrong, and um, our church was growing so much we had to relocate, and um, that was a huge fight against the city. So for about a year and a half, 
I was really sick and I was getting sicker and um, doing a lot of crazy stuff that today I look back on and I say, oh my goodness, I can't believe, you know, just crazy stuff and taking all kinds of risks and, um, but not knowing. Like to your safety or to, in your leadership? What do you mean by that? Uh, Sometimes it was physical risk and other times it would be the risk of uh, being caught at doing something that a pastor, you know, why were you there or why were, you know, anything that felt like it was risky. Um, There were certain boundaries. Fortunately, I mean, I had pretty solid boundaries as a person. So there were things that never happened that happened for a lot of people um, that don't even have bipolar disorder. Um, But um, so anyway, um, but I just like go to a bridge and stand on and think, I bet I could jump off this and nothing would happen. I could probably fly if I wanted to. And, um, you know, uh, going like places, I would drive late at night just to try to manage all of this. Now, I didn't have that kind of terminology. I just thought I was really stressed. And, you know, because I had this vibrant growing church, and I had all these staffing issues and all of this, but it's easily justifiable when you're when you're growing so quickly and you're seeing success in so many areas. And I want to touch on a thing that you said, you said, uh, people thought, oh, he's just a good leader and he's creative. Well, those things were true. You were, you are creative and you are a good leader, right? So. Right. They're (laughs) true. And, and today I would be able to lead and do all of those things, but I would know what I was managing underneath the surface. And little did I know that instead of me using the creativity and all of that for uh, and following it through, what I would have to do is many times just spew out all my creativity and then have the staff members kind of figure it out. And I would get um, frustrated, you know, if they didn't catch on the first time or, you know, why do I have to repeat that? I shouldn't have to repeat that. And many afternoons I would just leave the office because I'd have evening meetings And I knew that I needed the afternoon to get myself ready for the evening or I'd be a complete mess. And so I ran on adrenaline a lot. And um, but I would I get up at 435 in the morning and I'd be at the office by 530 and usually had done all of my work or most of it before the staff even got there. So, yeah. And then I managed to have an encounter with the law and I was begging God, please, please, please help me. There's something wrong. You know, I asked for help. My wife asked some of the people for help and nobody knew what to do. And I thought I was burned out. I thought I needed time off. And um, I knew that um, there were parts of life that I couldn't quite remember. I, I didn't know if it was in my head or if it had really happened or, and um, so, yeah. And I pleaded with God, do something. I need help, you know? 
And um, he did. He, he allowed me to have an encounter with an undercover officer at 920 at night in a, in a outside of an outhouse. He said that I did something different than what I said I was doing there and what I recall doing there. And it wasn't a place I should have ever been, but it was on my way out to those roads where I like to drive. And um, for me, it's like remembering uh trying to watch a VHS tape and there was no lights there were, you know, back in the day when they were just new. And, um, I still to this day, don't think I did what he accused me of doing for 20 seconds, but it doesn't matter. I did. Ur I, I do know that I urinated on the outside of the wall of a men's, uh, outdoor bathroom. And, um, so he took it at me. Wow. Was that the beginning of you having to reconcile what all of this was? Because it sounds like all of these things could easily be justified as far as the success and leadership and personality and creativity. Uh, those around you may have noticed that something was off. And you you mentioned this internal monster and struggle, uh, but easily justifiable. Like you said, I'm burnt out. I'm worn out. I, I have high standards, all of these things. Uh, what this Was this kind of that reckoning moment? Oh, it was more than reckoning. It wrecked me. <laughs> it just wrecked me. Um, I had never been severely depressed nor suicidal. And within hours, my mood went from a very high, elevated, manic episode to um, ready to die. And, and my mother-in-law had died of suicide a number of years earlier. She, too, had uh, manic depression. And my dad had it, and my mother-in-law had it, and my wife was like, can I get away from this? And um, anyway, um, so it was kept private. Uh, nobody said anything until it broke in the news. And then the church found out, and everybody found out, and I was in the news, on the news, in the newspaper. That went on for about 18 months. Wow, that would have been devastating. I'm living proof that... Uh, with the right kind of support, people can make it through. Um, if it had been up to me, I wouldn't have been alive. But um, uh, it took the church forever. And, and uh, a number of the people really, um, they filled in blanks they shouldn't have filled in before we even knew what was wrong. And um, I saw a counselor right away. I started seeing a counselor right away. And he suggested that I get to some treatment um, in a hospital and that I see a psychiatrist and things like that. Well, it took, that happened in May and it was not until August that I, they finally, the church agreed. They put me on a leave of absence. And um, the, there was this little thing I had to go to in court. It was the same as a traffic ticket is in the United States. And uh, it, of course, television, et cetera, et cetera. And um, what would have been a $50 fine and would have never, ever been in the newspaper or anything, but because of who I was, it was, I, it, it led the news, you know, and um, I couldn't even, I mean, I was so agoraphobic at that point. I had dropped like 40 or 50 pounds in a matter of three weeks initially. 
And so by the time that all happened, um, then the elders asked me to resign the next day. And my therapist said, don't resign when they ask you to do that and take a, take a, uh, another pastor with you. I did. We're still very good friends today. I am still friends with all those elders. I mean, I can see them and it's fine. A lot has been reconciled and, you know, um, God redeems all that. But um, so they asked me, I said, no, not until you get me help. Um, you help me get this sick and uh, I need help. Um, and so they paid, uh, you know, for me to go to the hospital, the insurance and all that. And um, fortunately, my therapist had been through his own crisis in ministry and became a therapist after being a pastor. And so I think he went through a divorce or something. But um, anyway, I ended up going to the hospital and uh, in it was a hospital in Michigan that had they kind of helped clergy at Pine Rest Hospital in, um, yeah. And um, so anyway, I was in one of the group support group things they were having. And this woman was describing her mania. And I thought, I think I have that. I think that's what I have, you know. Well, I saw my psychiatrist there the next day and she was about 72 years old. She had been a missionary in Africa. And I said to her, do you think maybe I have bipolar disorder? And she said, oh dear, yes. Now this was my second appointment with her. And I said, well, why didn't you tell me that the last time? And she said, honey, you never shut up long enough. <laughs> For me to tell you, <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> but it was it was hilarious because it was true. <laughs> and um, so then they put me on medicine, and I then I realized that I knew about my dad, but I'd never put two and two together that what I was dealing with was the same disorder, but carried out differently, played out differently in our lives. So when you were first prescribed medicine, did you struggle with that um, taking medication or that faith, shame, that I could pray this away? Or how did, did that ever kind of? Oh, absolutely. I think at first I was so relieved to know there was a name to the monster. You felt validated. Yep. And yeah. I felt like I felt like I wasn't the monster, but I was dealing with a monster. And now everybody and their brother thought I was the monster. <laughs> you know, I was dealing with all that shame and guilt. And it took about, it took a good seven to 10 years before I was really, um, I didn't start Fresh Hope um, until I relapsed seven years after because I got my medicine scooped up and it was not even that I wanted to quit taking. I just knew I had to take the medicine and I thought my mood could never push past it. And it did. I had a nephew that was injured in a bus crash and um, he was almost died and uh, with one sister and it was stressful. And, and the new church that had started was relocating. So all those triggers all happening at the same time. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I, I didn't even think about it. And 
Now, when going back to 1994 and 95, um, when when I got home, then I did resign, and um, I, you know, a group of people came behind me and said, "You have a you have a mental illness. You weren't treated. This is not a sin issue." And that's what the doctors told the leaders of my denomination, as well as. I had my own physician who was one of our elders there and gave them, you know, the opportunity to meet with him. And they said, well, it's not a sin issue. This is really an issue of behavior that is triggered by a brain that's not working right and brain chemistry issues. And I understand today that uh, also for those of us with bipolar disorder, if not treated, our impulse center of the brain does not work right at all. Cause I had all kinds of impulses. Like I was going to open a door on an airplane just to see what would happen. I mean, so anyway, um, this group of people started a church and then they said, we want you to be our pastor, but we don't want you to pastor us. We want you to get better. We're starting a church to provide a community of believers for you so that you have a safe place to recover. And all we want you to do is work on you and your family. And they said, and we will pay you. And then they gave me an 18% pay raise from the church that I was serving. And what a blessing. That's unheard of. Yeah. For almost two years, I did not work, and I did nothing but work on me. Who was on your and team, or did were you doing that on your own, or who was on your team to help you through the, those first initial two years? Oh, my doctor and my therapist, as well as then I had an accountability team that worked with me of peers, of other pastors, and. Um, you know, like my doctor gave me very practical things. Like I want you to start going to bed at night at the same time. I want you to take your medicine as prescribed, you know, and each week we would work on something new. And um, I had to find at one point, I had to find three hobbies that had nothing to do with ministry because my identity had always been ministry and what I could do for God, you know, and that proved my worth. Well, I was suddenly realizing I didn't feel worth anything and um, there was not much I could do for God. Wow. It's amazing. Those practical small things that people dismiss can be so transformative. I often talk about the keys to resiliency and having fun and sleep and rest and food. Those are all those things listed in there. Yep. Yep. Yeah. He, um, He made me, he really stayed on the um, hobbies for a long time. And so 40 pounds later, I had perfected my aunt's wedding cake. (laughs) That was one thing. I I learned how to make cakes. And secondly, I tried to golf. That didn't work so well. I hit the one day, uh, by by the time I played the third hole, for with 18 holes, I had swung more often than guys who play 36 holes. And um, so I would always eat a candy bar and drive the, you know, Sounds the good. golf cart. And... <laughs> it's my kind of golf. I'm with you on that. Yeah. Is, is art um, like art one of yours? Because I know you're a, you're an amazing artist. Well, that was my third one. And that still today I do. 
and it it is my way. Uh, and I've been kind of in a dry spell. I kind of burned myself out around Christmas time. I made 60 different things for people. I had 60 orders to fill and I, That's I a lot. burned myself out. <laughs> yeah, I was, I just haven't been able. It no longer became a hobby. It became yes, work. <laughs> it was. And um, But it is that spot where I can go and become, it's like being a little boy. Now I tell people um, when I relapsed and I went to um, some support groups. And at that point I was hospitalized again and um, I, I I, almost everything repeated, but it wasn't the same issue. This time it was disturbing the peace, but I made the news. It was all over the news again. It was just like living a nightmare. So that was 19 years ago now. Um, and um, since then, I've had no issues, no episodes, no. I've had a little depression here and there, but kind of goes with winter usually. Um and who doesn't have some of that? Who doesn't? I was going to say that sounds relatively average. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and but through it, I decided, okay, I need to figure out how to live in spite of this, because I went to these support groups, and I won't name them, but they're well-known international groups, really. And all I heard was venting. And it was making me worse. It wasn't helping me. And I thought, is this what my life is now? I got to become mentally ill. I was learning how to do it by going to those groups. And so what happened then, I started complaining for about three years to the doctor. And one day he said, Brad, why don't you start the group you want those groups to be? Start the group you want to go to. And I'll, I'll help you if you need help. And you know, so I started writing things and would take them to him. And uh, lo and behold, I started the first Fresh Hope group. And what I found out is I had had no passion until that moment. And when I found out that my pain could be encouragement to other people, that my most painful story, the most painful part of my life, could encourage and give hope to other people, that's when my pilot light went back on for my passion in my life. And because um, I really felt like I was broken merchandise up to that point that got really was done. The best was behind me. And I was only 37 years old. Well, by that time I was 44. But um, lo and behold, I started that group. And now today, I, I always tell people I'm living proof. I, I tell the guys in jail every week when I go and I teach Fresh Hope principles there. And I tell them, I've been on the news more than any one of you. And some of them have been on the news a lot. <laughs> so one man, because the guy wouldn't sell him some cigarettes, ran him over with his car. I mean, so, you know, they're on the news. Um, well, lo and behold, um, yeah, I tell them I am living proof that hope works. How powerful is it to come not from a do, here's a grocery list or here's a to-do list, here's medication, this will make you better, but I have walked 
the path and you can do it too. That is mm-hmm. such a powerful message to share. Nothing, nothing is like that. Well, and I think that's part of my frustration with the Christian church is that they don't understand that they have a role to play in this. Um, hope, who better than having Christ-centered, hope-filled faith that is infused into, like, there's 25 years of clinical research on how hope works from a human perspective. But then if you take that and you take Romans 8, 28, and you infuse that into how hope works, now you have sure and certain hope. We have the hope that people desperately need. Secondly, we have a whole host of people that have overcome many things in their lives. And You know, it was one thing to hear my doctor. It was one thing to hear clinicians say, you know, blah, 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 or blah, blah, blah. But when I met someone who was like me that had made it, those words were like liquid gold to me. And see, I think there's things I can say to people who are struggling that no people who have never walked it generally can't say it because they don't know, you know, we all do best with helping those whom we've been comforted, you know, what Paul says and yeah. And the Christian church has this arsenal of people. So so for me, support groups in mental health, Christian faith-based support groups, or how the church can help in this crisis that we have worldwide. We really have an, an issue with hopelessness. And um, there, even if everybody went to see a, a, a Laura or a clinician, there aren't enough. So anyway, that's my passion. Yes, I love it. And tell us more about Hope Made uh, not. Sorry, I'm getting all of the hope. I'm used to saying hope made strong for my stuff. Fresh hope, because I really would love to hear how, well, you told us that's when your light turned on again, and that's where you really found a passion. So how how does that work? Like, where is it now, you know, 10, 15 years later? Well, we've got about 100 faith-based mental health support groups in about 14 different countries. Um, and we really are a little frustrated because we find um, church leaders are sometimes the roadblocks to getting these things going because there's they think there's more risk in having a mental health support group than there is in having AA. And I tell them it's the same thing or celebrate recovery. It's the same thing. And um, the, uh, the other thing is, is that um, so we have those kinds of support groups and, and we do it different because the loved one and the person with the diagnosis are in the group together. They don't both have to come, but they're welcome to both come to this very same group. And then we have podcasts. We have all kinds of videos and resources for them and for the groups. And now we're starting Fresh Hope for Pastors, which will be um, and healing the heart wounds of ministry. That's a new thing that we're starting for clergy, and it's a trauma-based faith in or faith-based trauma-informed recovery process to learn resiliency for ministry. How do I deal with the rejection? How do I how do I process this? And their spouses. So it's something that pastors and their spouses can do together. 
We also have uh, trauma, we do trauma healing groups for people uh, from the National um, Trauma Healing Institute, um, from the American Bible Society, as well as um, we now have hope coaching, uh, where we train people how to be a hope coach, just to help anybody go through a difficult time, how to pivot from hopelessness to hope. And um, we offer that online for free also. And uh, the hope coaching for people, we have a connector thing that does it. And um, a good friend of mine who passed away about three years ago, his uh, widow is uh, started a Fresh Hope for refocusing widows. And um, so uh, the book, I think, is now in three or four languages and soon to be in one of the Indian dialects out in India. Um, so yeah, we, and we have groups online and that kind That's of fantastic. I love it because I think what you said there is it's so powerful that when people with lived experience can come together, encourage and offer hope for one another, it is so powerful. And research is showing that it is, that is what moves the marker in people's recovery. Mm -hmm. um, to connect your story with what you're doing, people, um, you know, how long has it been? You've been in recovery. Well, I was diagnosed in 1996. So, uh, or the fall of 95 or no, the spring of 90, the fall of 95. And then the church started in, in, um, 1996. So I've been in recovery a long time. And, mm -hmm. I've, and I think that's important for people to hear that recovery includes um, the setbacks and it includes the up and down moments. Yeah, and I really believe I tell what I teach in Fresh Hope stuff is I talk about I really think there's three phases to recovery or you, you're going to fall down in one of these three areas, most likely. And it's a continuum. Um, but for instance, there's just the OK this has kicked my butt. Now I've got to decide to get back up and live. So there's just that phase of just making the decision to live every day. It, you may not shower, you may not do this, you may not, you may not do a whole bunch of stuff, but you decided to breathe and live. And then um, the second phase is learning how to cope. You know, your learning skills of how to overcome. That's, that's quite long. And then there's the part where you live well in spite of it. And so what we talk about is it is possible to live well in spite of having a mental health diagnosis and um, to have a faith-filled, encouraging life. And um, doesn't mean that I can ignore it. It doesn't go away. Recovery doesn't mean I no longer have bipolar disorder, but I rule over the monster now. I determine that the monster is chained up I don't feed the monster. There's a whole bunch of stuff I, I don't do and I do to manage that monster. So good. So good. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Well, it's certainly not a uh, private story. <laughs> <laughs> it's been out there, so you might as well. But, you know, one of the things, and I think most of us came from shame-based families. I think we live in a shame-based world, shame-based societies. One thing that I've learned is that people can think whatever they want about me. They can think whatever they want about my story. 
But I just know this, that shame would have kept me from ever telling it if it hadn't been public. But because it's been public, I have nothing more to lose. And, and so if I can, and suddenly the, the most painful thing in my life that I would have never, ever wanted to tell when I tell it, it helps other people. <laughs> and to me, that is how God redeems us. It's part of his ongoing redemption. I mean, yes, he saved me. I'm going to heaven. But this living out my life on this side of heaven. Yeah. So knowing what you know today, what would you tell your past self in those early years? Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I think I, I, I could have told my past self prior to medication. I could have told, I could have returned in the flesh to myself and I wouldn't have listened to myself because I was that, I was that very prideful, very, um, uh, you know, no, that's not what I've got wrong with me. And no, that's not going to happen to me. And no, you know, but um, the other thing is I, more than anything, I think I would have said, give grace to yourself, give grace to yourself and, and quit trying to cover up the pain. Something's wrong and you're going to find out what it is and you'll be okay. You know, but um, yeah, because life is difficult for most people. It's just when it's our difficulties, they just seem insurmountable at times. And um, so, yeah, I was part of the Harvard uh, did a um, study on what they call dark horse study. So why do some people, are they resilient in situations that most people can't? be resilient to. And um, mine didn't make the book, which is fine. <laughs> but I did see myself on their website. But the for me, the bottom line is, and I have the book here. This is one of the books that I've read recently that really made sense to me why some people are resilient. The book was Learned Optimism for anyone who's listening. I'll post it in the show notes. <laughs> he really talks about the fact that there are there are people that either they see the glass half full or they see it half empty, kind of. It, it, he, it's not that simple at all. It's not at all. And it's and it's not denying that there's there's difficulties, but it's I can get through these. And I told somebody recently that I think when you have a mental health issue, you have to decide, I will get through this and God will take this and make it work for my good. Even if you grew up all your life pessimistic, you have to learn how to say, I don't like this. I don't want to go through this, but I'm going to. And I think that's where you start to overcome that that those are some of the initial steps of recovery. And um, even though I don't feel hopeful, you feel hopeful for me. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose to steal a little, little of your hope. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I encourage you to put what you've heard today into action. How are you going to be intentional about building a culture of care for both yourself and for others in your church? 
And don't forget, if you want to be reminded when an episode goes live, make sure you subscribe. Thanks for connecting and take care.